the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, simultv.com, simultv.com. What's simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com. SIMULTV.com. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall, a retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel. Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. I am here with James Carrion. We are continuing our discussion of the Roswell Deception, uh, a book he has produced uh, or written and provided to us free online. I'll have a link to it at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com so you can take a look at the book. And the one thing that I liked about this book is when he mentioned a newspaper article or something like that in the text, you click on that link and it takes you to the actual newspaper article so that you can take a look at uh, exactly what it says or the, the, the documentation, not just newspaper articles, but the documentation to help support his uh, point of view. We were talking about the um, uh, Maury Island case and while we were away at break, um, the question came up, was Kenneth Arnold a member of the CIA. Of course, in June of 1947, it would have been the Central Intelligence Group, but that's a whole other argument. But did he have connections into the intelligence community? And I don't believe he did. I think uh, if, if you really research Arnold and his story, what he comes across as is just, uh, just a great American, just a very honest person who was very concerned about what folks thought of him. And... Um, that you know he just had a strange thing that happened to him and he told the truth about what happened and uh, he stuck to that story. So I don't think he was in on the deception. I think he was an unwitting actor in the deception. Um, but well, I think the reason why he uh, played such a central role is because of how impressionable he was uh, and how uh, easy he was to manipulate and to change his opinion. So where we are now is we've got uh, David Johnson who apparently is manipulating the situation for his purposes. 
We have Ray Palmer, the magazine publisher, who is manipulating the situation for his purposes, which is to validate the Shaver mystery. We have Kenneth Arnold, who is thrown into the maw simply because he saw these things near Mount, Rame Mount Rainier uh, several days earlier, uh, that sort of thing. We've got E.J. Smith, who was the United Airlines captain who saw some UFOs. We've got two Air Force officers, actually Army Air Force officers at the time, uh, Brown and Davidson, who have now met or will be meeting here in a moment with Arnold in his hotel room with Smith. And I think Dahl and Chrisman show up as well. Sure. So, so what happened is they all met up. Uh, the the two Army Air Force officers flew to Tacoma. They they met up with uh, uh, Arnold and Dahl and Krizman, and uh, they looked at the some of the the wreckage or uh, some of the debris that allegedly came from the saucer. They didn't look too impressed, uh, and then um, then they left. They decided they had to get back to Tacoma. Uh, they, they claim that because the next day was Air Force Day, they had to be back and have their bomber, uh, I guess, ready for some uh, for some sort of uh, overflight uh, as part of the part of the uh, celebration. So they decided to leave, and uh, they took off uh, early in the morning. And unfortunately, their bomber crashed, and uh, they lost their lives. Well, when we say early in the morning, let's let's be clear. It was sometime after midnight and sometime before 6 a.m. So it was, you know, the dead of night that they took off. Right. Uh, so that's really, truly early in the morning. Um, and I think we should point out that um, the aircraft accident really has nothing to do with flying saucers or anything else. It was just a tragic aircraft accident. And that before they took off, they told the intelligence officer, at the base there in Tacoma that um, they thought the whole thing was a hoax, that the, the metal that had been collected was uh, nothing important and they really didn't want to take it with them. And they, so they had a conversation with this guy before they took off. That is correct. And so what's interesting about that, I think you're, you're entirely correct there. Um, I think they were unwitting participants in this as well. And like I said, unfortunately, they lost their lives in the process. Um, but what happened after that was the manipulation that came out about what was on the flight and the reason things, you know, the debris was allegedly on the flight and whether it was a top secret cargo or not. And this all came out in the media. And again, let, let, me, let, me break, let me break in here because there's something we need to talk about before we get to that aspect of it is Arnold had asked, according to um, some of the sources, Arnold had asked, I think it was Brown, if anybody else had seen the same thing that he had. And he referred back to the Rhodes photograph of July 7th, 1947, which was published in the Arizona Republic, I think it was, of an object that was somewhat similar to what, what um, uh, Arnold said that he had seen. And, and Davidson apparently drew... Uh, a picture of it and then shredded it uh, just so that Arnold would know. So the question becomes at that point, was there another attempt at a deception and that Rhodes photograph is part of it? Um, you know, th that's an interesting aspect that I haven't fully researched. I think, I think it is relevant. Uh, but what I find striking is that the Rhodes photographs, if you compare them to uh, one of the Horton brothers aircraft, the Horton parabola uh, looks very similar. So um, I don't know what was flying around uh, in, in Phoenix that and Rhodes was able to get photographs of. Uh, I do find it interesting that that uh, Rhodes actually comes from a background where he he liked to fly model airplanes. I'm not saying that he was he hoaxed the event. Um, I'm just saying that that's an interesting connection. 
but but you're right. Uh, he did uh, the the two Air Force uh, folks did show him show show Arnold the uh, the Rhodes photo and say, hey, is this what you saw? And uh, there were some, uh, you know, some uh, connection made there. Um, but again, I think that these two Air Force officers were not part of the deception. I think they were just unwitting participants. Oh, I was going to say that as well, that they're, they're just doing their job. They're asked to investigate flying saucer sightings, and that's exactly what they're doing. So they don't need to be part of the deception. I just thought the Rhodes aspect of it was an interesting thing because Rhodes had a photograph, and Arnold just had his eyewitness testimony as un. Uh, his, his single witness eyewitness testimony and, and Rhodes had actual photographs. I thought it was interesting. You were going to, I think, uh, when I interrupted you so casually, uh, talk about um, uh, Chrisman and Dahl and what was going on in Har uh, Arnold's hotel room and how there was a connection to the press that, that it seemed that somebody was calling the press and telling him what was going on in the hotel room uh, and it wasn't Arnold or it wasn't uh, Smith who were doing it. And I think that kind of confuses the issue. Right. So, well, while all this was going on in Arnold's hotel room, uh, some anonymous caller was uh, calling up uh, uh, the local uh, newspaper and, uh, and, and, and telling them, hey, there's this meeting going on in Arnold's hotel room right now. They're talking about flying saucers. So, uh, and uh, these, uh, the Army Air Force is involved too. So it sounded like somebody really wanted to get this out as a news story, the fact that we have these uh, these original witnesses, right? To the primary witnesses, um, we have Arnold for his sighting and, and E.J. Smith for his sighting, meeting with Army Air Force officers to talk about uh, UFOs, uh, and somebody wanted that leaked out to the press. And um, the the two Army office Army officers, of course, are unfortunately killed in the aircraft accident some hours later. Um, did that kind of play into the hysteria that that? developed out of this? Uh, sure, absolutely, because then what this uh, same anonymous caller then did was call back after that and say, uh, hey, you, you know that I'm telling the truth because I know the names of the two officers that were killed, and this was before the Air Force had released their names. Um, so that sort of gave some uh, credibility to the fact that this, this anonymous caller uh, had an inside track to what was happening. And then on top of that, he made some other allegations like, uh, that it was uh, that the bomber was shot down by 12, 20 millimeter cannon fire, uh, you know, sort of insinuating that um, there was some part of our own government that had shot it down, trying to keep this cargo from getting to its destination. Uh, so it, it, all this hyper sensationalism that was uh, released right after that, uh, based on these anonymous phone calls, is what made it out into the news stories and around the world. Well, I was going to suggest it was Dahl and Chrisman who made the phone calls to the newspaper because they would have known what was going on in the hotel room. But um, as you were talking about the caller knowing the names of the two Air Force officers, which, of course, Dahl and Chrisman would have known, uh, what about David Johnson making the phone calls? Would uh, Dahl and Chrisman have been talking to these guys and have learned something from them and been privy to the inside information? Uh, he could have been a candidate for the as the anonymous caller. I, I would have I would have voted for Christmas myself, but that's just me. Well, we've we've got Maury Island going here as part of this deception. We really haven't talked about Roswell yet, and we need to get to Roswell because we're going to run out of time if we're not careful here. So um, we've got Arnold in June of June twenty fourth of nineteen forty seven. We have Maury Island, I think June twenty first of nineteen forty seven in the newspapers. We have our pal E. J. Smith on the July 4th weekend. Now we're moving to 
July 8th, and we're getting to the Roswell case and what's going on there. And I'm just going to keep talking here for a moment because we're about to run out of time. And I don't want to get into this where we're going to have to break after just a couple of seconds. So we'll we'll tackle that when we get back. We'll be talking about the press release and how that came about and what Walter Hopp might have said or might have done and what he did. Once again, I will have more information up at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and I will have a review of um, Project. I've already got a review of Project Blue Book up there from the uh, first episode, but I'll have more information about that and what went on in the most recent episodes uh, here in the next couple of days. I'll have something with uh, James Cameron. James Cameron did it again. Told you I was going to do that. James Carrion uh, and his book, The Roswell Deception, here coming up. And uh, you can take a look at his historydeceived.blogspot.com. And for those of you who want to get into the minutia of the Roswell case, take a look at Roswell in the 21st century, because I would appreciate you taking a look at it and writing a review for it on Amazon. We will be back with James Carrion in just a few moments. So stick around. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomenon, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. With over 28 years of broadcasting and more than 4,500 individual guests, The X-Zone is truly a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality, as evidenced by the credibility, integrity, and professionalism of the guests that we bring to our international audience. If you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell, by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035, extension 143, and on Skype, Exxon Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exxoneradiotv.com or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next we meet here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember X-Zone Nation, keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. It's hard to listen to the news without realizing we're living in volatile, unprecedented times. Yet never has there been such an opportunity to transform the human condition. As old structures fail, where can we find the guidance to co-create a better way? 
Find Your Path Home is an ever-evolving, leading-edge information, education, and healing resource center designed to support and guide you on your path to unity and enlightenment. Based on sound principles employed by Shaman Worldwide, we provide techniques that can support you through the current transitions, offering online shamanic classes, international long-distance shamanic healing sessions, complimentary Mission Evolution radio episodes and Stairway to Heaven TV vignettes, seminars, retreats, and much more. All of this can be found on findyourpathhome.com. I am joined by James Carrion. Remember, I got it right this time. His book is The Roswell Deception, and his website is historydeceived.blogspot.com. We're talking about the Roswell Deception. His book, Anachronism, uh, preceded that one, and it talks about the 1946 Ghost Rocks. Both of those are free online, so you can pick those up uh, very cheaply, I guess. Um, I think we pretty well examined... Maury Island and some of the surrounding activities there. And the book is, in fact, called The Roswell Deception. So let's get to Roswell. Uh, I think one of the premises is that um, you suggest that Walter Hott issued two separate press releases. Um, what's the basis for this conclusion? Well, I think it's based on the fact that if we look at the stories originating uh, with the AP and the UP, uh, they seem to be come from different sources. Um, you would expect if there was one common press release that all the details would match up, and in fact, they don't. But wouldn't that be explained by Walter Hott's suggestion that he had phoned the press release to the various outlets in Roswell? And we should point that out. There were four media outlets in Roswell at the time, the Daily Record, the Morning Dispatch, KGFL, and KSWS, and the KSWS and KFGL, the radio stations, uh, one was associated with the Associated Press and one was associated with uh, the United Press. So wouldn't, if he had phoned the uh, press release to those two organizations, or to all the four of those organizations, wouldn't you get variations in the uh, content of the press release? Except we don't know for sure whether that was phoned in or what, or was brought in because uh, the accounts uh, seem to be contradictory. Uh, I, I think I, I posted this in some of the comments uh, on your site uh, that Frank Joyce uh, claimed that the uh, the press release was dropped off, and he even said it was on onions. There was a certain onion skin uh, 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 paper. So. Uh, that that sort of insinuates that Walter Howe actually paid him a visit and physically dropped it off. And George Walsh said he called him. Right. Read it to him over the telephone. And so, actually, Joyce puts out, um, Joyce saved uh, teletype messages that, that transpired by this time. And I, I never forgot how he managed to save those and not the press release itself if he had one. But he... Um, uh, in that it says that there was no written account, it was all verbal. So wouldn't the documentation suggest that uh, Walter Hott was right when he said um, he phoned it in? Um, but but I, don't, I don't think uh, Walter ever said that specifically. Uh, he's the one who had the, he couldn't actually remember what he had done. Well, yes, he told me both both versions. He said he, said he couldn't remember whether he dropped it off or he phoned it in. Right. And he said, he said that to me. So, I mean, and we go by what we have there. And there's a third version that, that was printed in the, um, the Daily Record. And they're right there in Roswell. So I just, I just wonder, what would be the purpose of two specific different press releases? Sure. 
Okay, so and this gets back to uh, back to the deception theory. So uh, in addition to this deterrence value that the deception had for making the Russians think we had something they didn't, uh, I also think there was a code-breaking aspect to this. Uh, and I really explain in detail how that how that code-breaking operation would have worked in my first book, Anachronism. Um, but it uh, had follow-up value uh, in 1947. And it basically boils down to this. The Russians used the media as this open source of intelligence. And if there was something that came across to their attention that was very juicy, uh, they would have had to report it back to Moscow Center immediately. Uh, the problem is they were very limited in the way they could communicate with Moscow. Uh, they re really had just three options at their disposal. They could send a human back, uh, which would take days, um, or they could put in the diplomatic pouch, which which take days, or they could use commercial telegraph, uh, which means they could they could march down to the Western Union or uh, to IT&T and, and basically just send a telegraph back to Moscow. But if they were trying to to avoid the Americans knowing what they were really interested in, they wouldn't have sent it back in clear text, they would have encrypted it. And that was sort of their uh, standard uh, operation. So again, uh, if the Americans knew this, if we knew that they used the media as open source of intelligence, and they were using encrypted telegraphs to get them back to Moscow, um, then this is where the code breaking part of it could come into play. So what the Americans could have done was to um, seed the press with stuff that was an intelligence values to the Russians, in this case, this aerial weapon, flying saucers. Uh, the Russians would run down to their telegraph agency and encrypt the communication to send it back, which could have been uh, an excerpt from the newspaper. It didn't have to be verbatim. But those same telegraph messages uh, through an operation called Operation Samrock were being copied. So everything being sent back to Moscow by the commercial telegraph agencies were being copied and sent to the Army Security Agency uh, and to OP20G, which was the Navy code-breaking organization. So with the encrypted telegrams in hand and knowing what pro probably was in the message to begin with because they had planted in the press, they could use that to reverse uh, and to do what, what's called uh, through a uh, known plain text attack that were able to then try to break out what the underlying Russian code was. But why does why do they need two different versions of the press release to do that? They they really they wouldn't need two versions. I think I was trying to explain that in one of my uh, uh, posts online. Um, it would have it would have made things easier for them because again, if you have uh, Agent X in one part of the country sending back the UP version of the press release, and you had Agent Y in another part of the country sending back the the other uh, press release, then with both of those in hand where there was some commonality, but there wasn't complete overlap, uh, they could try to, they could use that then to, to even have greater success in their code breaking. And they could also use it as a sort of a geographical locator of where these potential uh, intelligence assets were at. But doesn't that suggest that the press releases would have been printed verbatim in the newspapers and we can take a look at the accounts and see that many of them were rewritten by the local editors to add the local color type aspect to it. So you don't have though what version A being printed per verbatim in one newspaper and version B uh, being printed verbatim in another newspaper. You've got all kinds of different things thrown in there. And you've got Walter Hott's name spelled wrong consistently, and it's been updated and changed around in various. And the other thing is within three hours, the story's dead. Right. You're saying, well, it's a weather balloon. So you know, why would the Soviet, the Soviet uh, spies 
whoever they are in whatever aspect of it, even even rush to get this thing to Moscow because the the urgency is gone when the story is killed. Uh, but no, but it's still there. There's the immediate the the urgency of the of the immediate of the initial release. So the the initial release that Roswell, that the five hundred ninth had captured a flying saucer, that would have been something of an of a of urgency to the Russians. But by the time, but but by the time you've got, uh, I think the the press releases go out around two o'clock and two 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 to three o'clock in the afternoon, um, mountain time, and by five o'clock, in Fort Worth, Ramey's saying, "Nah, it's a weather balloon." Sure, but even the detraction the detraction would have been of importance to the Russians. I mean, remember, this is we're talking we're talking about St Stalinist Russia. We have Joseph Stalin, who is obsessed with this idea of creating uh, some super weapon of his own. And if the Americans have a beat him to the punch again, right, they already had the atomic bomb, he didn't have it. Now supposedly they have something greater than the atomic bomb. So he would have, he's so obsessed with this idea of having his own super weapon, he would have tasked his intelligence services and say, anything that looks to be related to this, I need to know about it immediately. So both the initial press release about the capture, even the detraction would have been of importance to him, right? Any clue as to what the Americans were doing or what they had or what they were up to was, was of importance. But the point really is, there's the story was killed within three hours and it fell out of... I guess, ufological view until Jesse Marcel talked about it in 1978. But I, the, the point is, it just doesn't seem to me that this is something that has the urgency to get to Moscow that quick. And I don't understand if it's that important um, why he couldn't, why they wouldn't have, uh, have, have dispatched a, a diplomat or a courier to Moscow with the information, which would have gotten it there in hours rather than days. No, it wouldn't have been hours. Uh, you, you couldn't cross the Atlantic that quickly. Uh, you could cross it pretty quickly in an airplane in 1947. Uh, no, not even in 1947. You still had to take some some very uh, roundabout routes. It would it would take it would take a while. Um, but still, it would have gotten to Moscow pretty quick. But not it's, not like, it's not like you had to take a boat across the Atlantic Ocean and then take a train to Moscow. Well, that's the problem. There was no there was no uh, international uh, phone service. There was only telegraphic service. So if you I, had I, choice, no, I didn't say a thing about a telephone. I said take a train. There is no train. That's what that's what I'm saying. So given a choice, if you're if you're a Russian agent working in the United States and you are being told to urgently communicate back uh, anything that relates to uh, you know, a potential new American weapon, uh, and, and given a choice of how you're going to get that information back, whether it will take hours or days versus minutes, you're going to take the minute route. But you've also got to pick up the story out of the newspaper and determine whether it's of any importance. Correct. And, and by the time, in, in a matter of hours, you already know that there's nothing to this story because... The newspapers have retracted the whole thing and explained it's just a weather balloon. But that, and, sure, I understand what you're getting at, but that's what you're saying is of no importance is of great importance if you're an intelligence analyst. The fact that they retracted the story is of its in, in and of itself important because it tells you, well, why did they retract the story? Why, why did the 509th not know what they had? Uh, why did they think it was a weather balloon? Let um, me break in. Let me break in right here because we're getting close to the break here, and I. I 
I'm, I'm going to run over time if I'm not careful. I am being joined by James Carrion. His book is The Roswell Deception. You can take a look at historiadeceived.blogspot.com. And as I say repeatedly, uh, I'll have uh, more information up at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com so that you can take a look at his point of view, my point of view, and anybody else's point of view that uh, I happen to mention in those articles. Uh, we will be back right after this with uh, James Carrion. They are here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. Rob McConnell here, presenting an overview for Nicholas Paul Jinnick's, author of a fascinating book, Amen. It presents facts revealed by Egyptologists, facts that enable us to understand why Amen is the beginning of creation of God. It provides recommendations for religious leaders of the major religions to unify their beliefs and teach the word of God, love one another. Amen informs people how mankind conceived God. It was the Egyptians that developed the concepts of a soul, a hereafter, and son of God, and finally, after the worship of many gods, they conceived the belief in one universal God, the maker of all there is. For more information, visit www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com. We are back. I am joined by James Carrion. I'm very careful not to say Cameron anymore. I don't know why I keep doing that. Anyhow, I'm, I'm here with James Carrion. Um, we had been talking off the air here briefly about this, and the question came up, why couldn't the uh, Soviet agents just run to the embassy and have it put on the radio and uh, or the telegraph from the embassy to contact Moscow? Rather, you can through, through this other activity of sending it uh, private or uh, publicly that way and James you were saying yeah they, they didn't use the radio and it stems back to uh, prior to you know in the early maybe late 1930s or early 1940s where they had illicit radio transmitters uh, at the embassies and consulates and the uh, Federal Communications Commission were able to track those down uh, and uh, basically confiscated the equipment so there was emergency radio equipment, but it was there in the embassies only to be used, for example, during wartime. What they did instead is they took advantage of the commercial telegraph agencies and the fact that they thought they were using an unbreakable code 
uh, all the outgoing communication was sent uh, using an encoding system called a one-time pad, which is truly unbreakable if you use it properly. The problem was the Russians were not using it properly, and there was a way to break into those codes, and that's where things came out like the Venona project, uh, which was a highly classified operation for breaking the Soviet code uh, during that time that we didn't only learn about in the 1990s. Uh, but they, the Russians were so confident in their code system, they didn't mind going down and, and actually putting it out on, on, a, on a commercial telegraph message. Well, you've mentioned Project Shamrock a couple of times here, and that is, I believe, uh, they didn't just monitor the Soviet uh, public telegra telegrams, but they monitored every uh, telegram going out of the United States into going international, I believe. Wasn't wasn't Shamrock just monitoring everybody's communication? Yes, it was uh, It was an operation that wasn't known about until the church committee revealed it. Uh, and it, it did actually act as some huge vacuum cleaner that just sort of siphoned up all those telegraph messages, not just the uh, encrypted uh, Soviet ones. So what we're saying when we get outraged today that the government is monitoring our cell phone transmissions and all this uh, is something that goes back into the 1940s with the government monitoring our communications. Uh, and and when they were monitoring everybody's communications, not just the Soviets or the embassies. They were monitoring, monitoring everybody's communications. And I should point out, I did, a, I think I mentioned on the blog, my blog at one point uh, about Operation Shamrock as well. So, I mean, it's well known that this this is what was being done. So, uh, they were unable to use the radio equipment that they had because of um, the Federal Communications Commission's confiscating their radios. But aren't embassies considered foreign territory and wouldn't it be awfully difficult to walk into an embassy and take away their radio equipment? Uh, I'm sure it would, but, but it's been done before. Okay. So we have the two press releases. Uh, you say in the book that uh, at one point you actually say that Blanchard wouldn't have had the authority to issue the press release without some kind of higher uh, communication. And later on you say he, it was unlikely that he would have issued the press release. But wouldn't Blanchard as the base commander and the commander of the 509th Bomb Group have the authority to issue press releases? Uh, well, he probably would have been able to put out a press release of something that was of local interest, but this is obviously much bigger than that. Uh, I think it goes back to, um, at the time, the only organization that uh, was allowed to put out a press release of this magnitude would have been a Joint Security Control, which is the, actual, the deception operation, uh, deception organization that uh, was behind the deception. And this goes back to uh, this public release veto power that they were given during World War II and was extended into peacetime uh, because they, they were responsible for making sure that anything that was of military value to the enemy uh, had to be uh, controlled. So if you think about it, uh, if, if what crashed at Roswell or allegedly crashed at Roswell was an ET craft, let's say, uh, then obviously that would be something of military value. So, you know, no one's going to put out a press release on that unless uh, Joint Security Control allowed it. If it was Project Mogul, it would have been the same thing. If it was a deception operation... Wait, 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 wait. Mogul, Mogul was uh, publicly known. Mogul wasn't highly classified. The balloon ex uh, experiments in New Mexico uh, were not classified. In fact, on July 10th, there were pictures of the Mogul array trains in newspapers around the country. Mogul, Mogul the 
ultimate purpose of Mogul was classified, but what was going on in New Mexico with the balloon launches was not classified. Correct, but the but the but the uh, project itself, the purpose of the project was still a classified operation. Absolutely, but what they were doing in New Mexico was not classified. So you say I found a balloon in New Mexico, and it was part of this array, is is uh, part of the New York University's uh, constant level balloon project, and was not classified. So um, that doesn't make a lot of sense. No, no, I'm 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 saying if they had put out a press release, if if uh, if the press release went out as we didn't capture a flying saucer, but by the way, we 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 found a mogul balloon out in the desert. Um, that in itself would have required some sort of authorization prior to release. But the uh, the, the name of Mogul was uh, bandied about in 1946 and 47 with the people at New York University. Even the name wasn't hidden from the people. Right, but it was still a classified operation. And in fact, the... Uh... No, no, no. The operation going on in New Mexico was not classified. The ultimate purpose to spy on the Soviets was classified, but what was going on in New Mexico was not classified. Right. So, so, but my point being that the um, the uh, Air Force, the principal Air Force Information Security Officer, uh, which now I have to remember his name, um, was actually at Wright Field prior to taking on his public information role. You mean Trukowski? Nope. Um, thinking of a different person here. It'll come to me in a second here. Um, actually, I'll just uh, quickly look up what we're talking here. But anyway, he was, uh, he put out some regulations concerning Project Mogul and the classification. I'm sorry, I found it here. It was uh, O'Donnell. So um, the Brigadier, uh, Brigadier General Emmett O'Donnell was the Army Air Force Director of Public Information during the Roswell incident. Um, and just prior to him taking on that role, he was also the Deputy Chief of the uh, Engineering Division for uh, Air Technical Services Command, which was later Air Material Command, right field. And when he was in that engineering role, uh, obviously he was responsible for Army Air Force Research and Operation Lusty and Paperclip and so on. But one of the things that he was intimately familiar with was Mogul. Uh, and we actually have a July 8th, 1946 letter that was sent uh, to General Carl Spatz from O'Donnell that outlined the mogul-related data that was to be classified as top secret. Yes, all of that is all well and good, but what they were doing in New Mexico was not classified. Well, I mean, and, okay, I'm, yeah. So you're, you're, perhaps you're correct, but my, my point being still that anything that was of potential military value to the enemy would have been would have required the authorization of Joint Security Control before public release. And I, I think we're going to go nowhere with this discussion, so we'll, we'll move on from from there. Uh, so we've got the uh, press release going out. You suggest there were two separate press releases. I say no, um, based on my interviews with George Walsh, uh, Frank Joyce, Art McQuitty, uh, people at the Roswell Daily Record, uh, Walter Hott, um, and the documentation, you say there were two separate press releases and you quote, I think, Frank Joyce saying that Walter brought it to him, which really doesn't make it make a case for there being two because he could have had carbon copies of the same one that went to everybody. We don't know that there was two. None of the press releases have survived and I don't understand why if Joyce was able to save the teletype messages, he was unable to save the press release, which he supposedly attempted to do. 
So we, I don't think we're going to come to a meeting of the minds on that. So, can I just point something out real quick? Yes, please. Yeah. So having multiple Roswell press releases is not central to my hypothesis. Um, it's whatever got printed in the paper, just the publicity value of that. So regardless of what the local editor mucked up and changed, it really doesn't matter. What what the end result was, it was there there were stories being being printed that were of potential intelligence values to the Russians. And the code breakers at ASA or code breakers at Op20G, they wouldn't have really cared what the source press release was. They just cared what the end result was. So they could take the newspaper article that was printed and assume that the Russians were looking at that same newspaper article and making up excerpts of that and encrypting that and sending back to Moscow. And those were the two points of comparative references that they needed. So it wasn't even the original source press release that really mattered, or even if there were multiple or different versions of the press release. It was the end result of what was printed in the newspaper that was of, of value to them. Okay. You had said, I'm going to change, I'm going to change directions here because we're going to run out of time completely if I'm not careful. Uh, you had said originally that um, the importance of the Roswell deception theory that you've, you've uh, talked about is that it would be possible to falsify it which I think is a good point. Um, when we come back, because I, I see we're getting close to the end here, when we come back, I would like you to tell me how you would go about falsifying your theory if, it, if the task was put on, on your shoulders. What would you do to falsify it? Sure. As I say, I am joined here with James, Cam James Carrion. Jeez Louise, I wish I could get these things straight. Um, his website is historydeceived.blogspot.com. The book is The Roswell Deception, which we've been talking about at length here. Uh, I will have information at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And if you're interested in the minutiae of the Roswell case, all the various details, I would suggest you take a look at Roswell in the 21st century. Uh, because I go into a lot of the things that we've talked about here, but I've, I've tried to narrow it down as a cold case. What is important? What is not important? What has been found to be a hoax? So you can get a lot of good information in that book as well. We will be back in just a moment with James Carrion talking about the Roswell deception. So stick around. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simultv, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simultv. Simultv offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, sci-fi, and horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at SimulTV.com. Do it today. 
they are here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, Simultv.com, Simultv.com. What's Simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a Simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night, I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about Simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about Simultv.com. SIMULTV.com. I am here with James Carrion. He had nothing to do with Avatar. Uh, we are talking about the Roswell Deception. And before he went away, I asked him a question. He had said in the beginning of the Roswell Deception that his theory uh, was one of the few that had been offered in the UFO community, and he's absolutely right about that, uh, a theory that can be falsified. And I asked him, how, if he was tasked to do that, how would he go about falsifying his theory? Sure. Uh, well, let, let me just first explain for the audience what that means. So falsifiability... Uh, is the ability for taking a theory or hypothesis and being able to prove it wrong, right? Everybody wants to prove a theory is right, but the flip side of that is for it to tr truly be a valid hypothesis, there also needs to be the capability or the ability to prove it wrong. So, and this is what I state in the book very specifically, I want people to prove me wrong. I present evidence and I show um, through all this supporting documentation why I believe it was a deception operation but I want folks to just prove me wrong. And now one way to prove me wrong would be, for example, to do your own historical research. If you find anything in my book that is inaccurate, uh, if any piece of history there is false or uh, just not true, I'd like to know that. But the, the real way that it's gonna be proven wrong though, is that we need to have those records that document this deception declassified. That's one way to prove this wrong. So I made this statement the other day on, on, on your blog, and that is if, uh, if, if the United States simply said, okay, all records from 1945 to 1948, we're just going to blanket declassify them and put them in the archives, that would be great. 
then I can just run into the archive and spend whatever amount of time it takes to look at all of the records that relate to joint security control and the, and the plans and operations department, the two primary organizations I think were behind this organization. And if I go through all their records and I see no trace whatsoever of this deception, then I can say, well, I guess I'm proven wrong because there's nothing to prove to support this. So that's part of the effort. So it does require declassification because obviously this has not come to light as many other things have, come, have not come to light. Uh, but we know from precedent that there are things that have happened in history that we didn't come to know about until decades later after when, when the information was actually declassified. So and part of the problem like with the extraterrestrial hypothesis is that it's not subject to false viability. How do you prove that an ET crash, that, that an ET spacecraft crashed if you can't disprove it? Uh, so that, that's the flip side of why, you know, I think ufologists are caught in this catch-22, whereas they, they desperately want folks to believe that there is something extraterrestrial behind us, but they don't have a way of disproving it, so science doesn't take a serious look at it. Well, how would you disprove that, the uh, extraterrestrial hypothesis? How would you disprove that? Well, you'd have to prove that there is actual extraterrestrial visitation and that, uh, you know, if they're, well, let's say, for example, uh, tomorrow we are visited and we say, okay, great, we got visitors. So then there's the potential that what happened in 1947 could also have been visitation, but we haven't had that yet. So when you say in your book, unfortunately, no U.S. strategic deception operations since World War II have been declassified, I cannot offer official smoking gun documents to confirm unequivocally that the U.S. Uh, penetrated strategic perpetrated, I'm sorry, perpetrated strategic deception in 1947, you're telling me I can't falsify your book. Not, not exactly right. You're, you're absolutely right. Not until the records until records are declassified, which is uh, why I have outstanding FOIA requests, and so do other folks, for the records of joint security control for plans and operations. Uh, I just called the CIA up yesterday and said, hey, what's going on with my FOIA request? They said, we're still working on it. So once I get that information, that's wait, a, wait a minute, you called the CIA yesterday during the government shutdown and they answered the phone? They did. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just went off on a tangent there. I could not help myself. Believe it or not. So you called the CIA and they just said that we're working on it. They're still working on it. It's, been going, it's going on two years since I submitted that FOIA request. Well, here's my CIA, CIA story. When I was working on the Ramey memo, uh, we discovered that it was part of the CIA that the Air Force went to to try to determine what the Ramey memo said. And I sent a FOIA request to the CIA, and their response to me was, well, the CIA didn't exist in 1947. And my response to that was, didn't ask you about something going on in 47. I'm asking you about what went on in 1994 when you, in fact, looked at the Ramey memo for the Air Force, but I never heard back from them. So there you go. Yeah, they, 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 they try to pull a similar uh, tactic with me. And when I asked for the records of joint, uh, the Joint Counterintelligence Center, and they said, well, wait a minute, that was founded in April 47, and the CIA wasn't founded until later in 47. Uh, so they denied that request. So I had to reformulate my FOIA request and say, yes, I understand that. But the same Joint Counterintelligence Center that started up in April 47 uh, you guys inherited it and was moved to CIA in 48. So that means you are still in uh, in control or, or have ownership of the records of of that center. And that's what I'm asking for. So I had to expand my search in order to get them to actually uh, respond. Is there a way to falsify your theory quickly um, 
without a massive declassification of documentation, which may not exist. So we can't we can't falsify it if there was no documentation if this didn't happen. Uh, well, that's true, but there's there's always going to be clues in, in anything that is declassified. So um, again, it's just going to come piecemeal. It's not going to happen quickly uh, because again, my, my theory, if my theory is correct, if this deceptive operation was perpetrated, this is uh, this is something that they've been trying to bury for so long. Uh, and if we even think about you know some of the uh, collateral. Uh, damage related to this. If we look at, for example, the MJ-12 documentation, some of the uh, other forgeries that have been perpetrated on ufology, if that's part of keeping this under wraps, then it's going to be a very long process before we start prying open uh, those coffers. What would be a purpose of keeping all this under wraps after more than half a century? Uh, well, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is uh, it's going to tarnish some historical reputations. Uh, look at who were the Joint Chiefs of Staff back then: Carl Spatz, Eisenhower, uh, Nimitz. These are but, folks that are American heroes. But if they're shown 70 years later that they lied to the American public, and and this lie has been ongoing for 70 years, those are some tarnished reputations there. I don't. I just can't see that as being a motivating factor for some people to no, worry about would, what happened 50 years ago. So. Correct. But that would just be one motivating factor. Now, if we look at other reasons why they would have kept this under wrap, uh, if any of this information, any of this counter, this, uh, for example, the counterintelligence aspect of this, if it related to things like, uh, for example, double agents, right? Maybe out of this, we were able to discover and, and recruit certain intelligence assets that become became double agents, and uh, those double agents served a number of years, and uh, unknown to the, to the Russians. Uh, and, you know, maybe we don't want that to come out so quickly. So there's have, reasons have, why. Have you, have you heard of Operation Solo? Operation Solo? No, I'm not familiar with that. That was a uh, guy was a Morris Childs was a um, communist in the United States and moved up to the in the leadership of the Communist Party in the United States and became a hero of the Soviet Union. And uh, what he was doing was feeding information back to the United States about what the Soviets were doing the whole time. He was, in fact, a double agent. That information is out. It was published in a book called Operation Solo, which, by the way, is a very good book, I should point out. Um, so, I, I mean, you know, we're, I think we're speculating here. We really don't know. And uh, you know, at, at, the, at this point, I can tell you things that were wrong in the book, um, mistakes that were made. Um, you go off on this guy named Curtin for a long time. It was supposedly was uh, on Ramey's staff in 1947 at C-U-R-T-A-N. It's in the FBI memo that's uh, out about that. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got a segment about him in your book, but it's the wrong guy because the Curtin we're talking about spelled his name K-I-R-T-O-N. And he's on the in the Eighth Air Force uh, telephone directory for July of 1947. So I mean, that's you know I I applaud the uh, depth of your research and the many biographies of all these guys. But on that that one, you're you just went off on a tangent that was wrong. Well, I, I think we need to compare notes on that because uh, whoever the person was was somebody in public information. So the guy that I mentioned was a public information officer, and his spelling was correct according to the memo. But this, but again, this is yes. But I'm telling you, the guy's name was the guy's name was Curtin, and he was at the Eighth Air Force, and you know I've got the documentation for that. Well, we, so I think, the I FBI think, was wrong. The FBI just put down the spelling, and they didn't bother to check. Okay, and that's very well possible, and I could be wrong in that aspect. But but minutiae like that, I'm I'm not so yes. concerned about. 
what I am concerned about is the overall aspect of the book and the plausibility of the hypothesis and the precedent of what I what I what I point out, right? The precedent of the people involved and the experience they have and what they brought to bear on this on this deception. All of that's that is beyond reproach because those folks were who they were. They had the experience they had. They were in the right place at the right time. And you know, I think all that's very well documented in the book. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's well documented in the book, and it's it's a wonderful wonderful read for those of us who are interested in the uh, minutia of the history. You go into that in depth at times, and some of the UFO cases. A very very good book, uh, James. I'm out of time. I got to thank you for taking uh, so much time with us today and answering the questions and uh, doing the work you've done and providing your work uh, for free online. Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate uh, having me here, uh, Kevin. And uh, like I said, I'm in this for one reason, and that's pursuit of truth. It's not to perpetuate mystery. It's not to sensationalize. It's simply to get at what the bottom line of truth is. Well, thank you very much. And I'm sure we'll be in contact sometime in the very near future. Sounds great. Thank you so much. You have a good day. Uh, once again, the book is The Roswell Deception. It is a companion of, I guess, The Anachronism, which is another book that he published free online. You can find them. Uh, the links will be in my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And uh, you can take a look at historydeceived.blogspot.com. And while I have a, just a moment here, I'd like to point out that those of you interested in the Pro Project Blue Book film, on History Channel. Take a look at Encounter in the Desert because they talk about the Flatwood Monster in one of the latest episodes and there's a segment in there that gives you some more information about that. Once again, this has been a special report from a different perspective. I am the host Kevin Randall and I hope to uh, visit with you all again real soon. So thank you for hanging around as long as you did. They are here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzulli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. If you are looking for a safe, zero-calorie, natural option to the harmful artificial sweeteners on the market today, Just Like Sugar is what you're looking for. Just Like Sugar is a wonderful natural alternative for those health-conscious people who choose a calorie-restricted diet with a great, pure, sweet flavor that tastes just like sugar. Just Like Sugar is a great natural option for people suffering from diabetes and may be useful in restricted diet programs where standard sugars are not allowed and does not cause a laxative effect of some other sweeteners. Just Like Sugar comprises a perfect blend of chicory root fiber, natural calcium, natural vitamin C, and Just Like Sugar's sweetness comes from the natural flavors from the peel of the orange. 
Just Like Sugar is a natural alternative to harmful artificial sweeteners and will change the way that you believe all natural sweetener products taste. Just Like Sugar is available at your local Whole Foods markets, Wild Oats markets, Henry's, Sun Harvest, and many other fine natural food stores in the U.S., Canada, and worldwide. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like Exxon, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. <laughs> 